Well, go ahead and have a seat. This is your first time here. My name is Steve, one of the pastors here at Village Church. And as always, I am thankful and grateful to see each and every one of you. If you have a Bible, go ahead and turn it to Matthew 27. We're going to be starting in verse 27 this morning. But over the past few weeks, we have covered both Jesus's preparation for the crucifixion as well as the conspiracy by others to crucify him. We've looked at the righteousness of Jesus on display while also viewing the wicked deception of the Jewish leaders, the cowardice of the disciples, the impotence of Roman leaders, and the almost viral response of the Jewish audiences in demanding the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. And they chose Barabbas over Jesus last week, and all of it is culminating into what we're going to start talking about this week. We're going to talk about his crucifixion today. We will talk about his very death next Sunday. And in all of it, Jesus was very much born with a mission to die on this day in this way. Jesus' sacrifice would, of course, lead to the greatest victory in the history of the world, and that is the victory that we will talk about on Easter Sunday, the victory of His resurrection. The demand of that victory, though, was for Jesus first to go to the cross in order to pay the penalty that I owe and the penalty that you owe for your sin. Jesus, of course, did it willingly, and He did it for the joy of redemption, for the joy of glorifying the Father by redeeming sinners through faith. You know, when we consider the suffering of Jesus on the cross, I believe it should sober you to the reality of your sin. And so as we walk through the text, this narrative of the crucifixion this morning, I need you to understand that it is no simple execution. Rather, this was the sinfulness of humanity on full display. Right beside the sovereign love of God in bringing His mission of redeeming sinners through this cross to a climax in the crucifixion. And so first, if you are a Christian, then understand that this is why you are a Christian. Without the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, there would be no Christianity because there would be no redemption from sins. There would be no forgiveness that you could seek. There would be no atonement for your sin that the death of Jesus Christ was necessary for you to be saved from your sin and changed into one of his followers through faith in him. But also, if you are not a Christian this morning, and I also want you to see through this narrative that a fate far worse than crucifixion awaits you. Because on the other side of death is only going to be more suffering if you don't give your very life to Jesus Christ through faith. And so I want to begin reading. I don't read the entire narrative up front. I want to begin reading in verse 27. Actually, I'm going to read in verse 26 first. Then he, Pilate, released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, delivered him to be crucified. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters and they gathered the whole battalion before him and they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and put a reed in his right hand and kneeling before him, they mocked him saying, hail king of the Jews. And they spit on him and took the reed and struck him on the head. When they had mocked him, they stripped him of the robe put on his clothes and led him away to be crucified. And they went out, excuse me, as they went out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name. They compelled this man to carry his cross. And when they came to a place called Golgotha, which means place of the skull, they offered him wine to drink mixed with gall, but when he tasted it, he would not drink it. 
And when they had crucified him, they divided his garments among them by casting lots. Then they sat down and kept watch over him there. And over his head, they put the charge against him, which read, this is Jesus, the king of the Jews. Then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the son of God, come down from the cross. So also the chief priests and the scribes and elders mocked him, saying, he saved others. He cannot save himself. He is the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he desires him. For he said, I am the son of God. And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. Number one this morning, the first thing that I want you to see in this narrative is that the crucifixion reveals the depth of human sin. The crucifixion reveals the depth of human sin. I find it fascinating that in this entire narrative over these many verses, you only really see two very short statements about Jesus. First, you see that they scourged him. Then you see that they crucified him. Other than that, this narrative really isn't very specific as to the lengths at which and the experience that Jesus Christ had himself, at least not in Matthew's narrative. Really, the focus of Matthew's narrative is on the people that were around the events, the people that were around the scourging, people that were beating him, people that were insulting him, people that were mocking him, people of Israel and people of Rome. And so you really see what John MacArthur says is four different groups of people in their sin in this text. You know, some people choose to go through the Bible and cherry pick the verses that make them feel good about themselves. They reduce the Bible kind of to a chicken soup for the soul kind of mentality as I need inspiration for the week. And so the Bible is what I'm going to go to. But you don't really look at narratives as a whole. You don't really look at the whole story of scripture. Rather, you just look for this one verse here, one verse there, what we call coffee cup verses, verses that make you feel like the best you that you can be. Some pastors, even the technique that they use is to ignore the aspects of Scripture that are going to make you feel very unpleasant about yourself and the world that you are in. And instead, they just seek to inspire you. That's, of course, not the, the way that I do it. That's not the way that I view Scripture, nor is it the way that I view Scripture for my personal life. Because if I did, it would be to the very detriment of my soul. Because one thing is for certain when I take the entire Bible as a whole, I am not the hero of the story. Neither are you. You're the villain. You're the enemy. You're the sinner. You are the one rebelling against God, and you are the very one that put Jesus Christ in the place that he is in in this narrative. And so if you read this narrative, if you read the gospel correctly, it should rightly make you feel pretty bad about yourself. Because if you see one thing from verses 26 through verse 44, you see that people are pretty rotten. They have the sinless Savior in front of them enduring what history tells us is the most excruciating form of torture because excruce literally means out of the cross. Excruciating means the pain of the cross. So understand that they had to create a word to describe the pain someone experienced on the cross. And so while Jesus is enduring everything that he's enduring in this text, the four groups of people that are mentioned in Matthew's gospel are not helping the situation. They're mocking him, they're beating him, they're condemning him. 
the throwing his own words in his face. And so what you see in this narrative really is the depth of human sin. You see the depravity of humanity. You see that sin blinds people to the reality that they do not have a right relationship with God because when God was right beside them, they killed him. The first group that I'll mention isn't the first group mentioned in the narrative, but it's the most obvious one. It's the ones that we've seen all throughout the gospel according to Matthew. It's the chief priests, it's the scribes, it's the elders. These men who were tasked with leading the Jewish people into the law of God to form a lifestyle in which they show everything that God has shown to them, to the world around them. These were the ones that knew of the promises that have been given to Abraham, that it is through the nation of Israel that all of the nations will be blessed that all of the families of the world will be blessed, that those who bless them will be blessed, those who curse them will be cursed. These are the leaders of those people. And rather than showing the light of God, which is what Isaiah said was their primary responsibility, because it is through them the light would come. And here's the deal. The light did come. The light was there. The light was Jesus Christ. And the religious leaders, their response was to kill Their response was to set him up, to conspire against him, to execute him. More than that, once he is on that cross, what do they do? Well, they throw the very word of God, his own word, in his face to vilify, to humiliate, to embarrass, to make him look like he is the powerless one in the situation. These men were the experts. They were the ones who had not just received the law of God, but were responsible for teaching the law of God. They knew the promises, they knew the prophecies, yet the fulfillment of them all being in Jesus Christ, they were completely blind to, and so blind to their own sin and their own death and sinfulness that they mocked the very Son of God. Then, of course, the second group that we see is Pilate and the Roman cohort, Pilate sentences him to crucifixion. And then in Matthew 27, it says that the battalion was gathered. Other translations might say cohort was gathered. A battalion or a cohort was around usually 600 Roman soldiers, which to me is kind of a funny picture. Jesus Christ, who is never recorded to be violent at all, is being guarded by 600 soldiers because he's so dangerous. We see that they gather, they mock, they beat, they spit, they drive a crown of blasphemous thorns into his skull. These are not just some thorn bush that you might have on the side of your house growing as a weed, but rather these are thorns that history tells us may have been around the size of a human finger, driven into the brow of Jesus Christ. They put a reed in his hands to mock him. Reminiscent of the book of Isaiah that says of the Messiah, a bruised reed he will not break, speaking of the grace of God for those that are hurt. And then they take the reed from him and it says they beat over the head with that reed while the crown of thorns was on his head, driving it even further, blood coming down his face. Another group, the two condemned thieves. 
It's fascinating about the two condemned thieves, which we talked a little bit about last week. We said that the term for robbers could also be similar to the language used for Barabbas, that insurrectionists, those that take by force. So we know that probably if they're being condemned to die, this isn't what we would consider petty larceny. Rather, this is something that they did by force because they're being condemned by death for it. They may have even been co-conspirators with Barabbas. Barabbas maybe was meant to be crucified in the middle of them. These condemned men who deserve the sentence for their crime, they mock Jesus. Another group still is the crowd that reaches a fever pitch. Peer pressure kind of does it to them. They kind of just join together because nobody wants to stand out from the crowd. So the whole crowd, the text says, begins wagging their heads and yelling at Jesus, condemning him along with the chief priests, the scribes, and elders. But they bring up his sermon that they heard outside of the temple. They say, oh, you said you're going to tear the temple down? Not realizing Jesus, of course, is talking about that very moment where he is the temple of God being torn down by crucifixion. All of these groups gathered, even if they claimed ignorance, doesn't matter. Because all that you see is sin. All that you see is a crowd of guilty men and women crying out for the death of the one innocent, unguilty man in front of them. In that entire crowd, there was one righteous man and he was the one being beaten. He was the one that would ultimately be crucified for their sin. It's the beating of Jesus that really reveals the worst of human depravity. Again, Jesus really isn't mentioned that much, at least his experience isn't in this narrative, but we do know through history what certain terms mean. In verse 26, it says that they scourged him before he was crucified. So understand, everything that I just talked about from those crowds and from that battalion happened after he was scourged because he was sentenced to die. John 19 calls it a flogging. And in Rome, under their empire, we know that there were three different forms of this type of capital punishment, each a little more severe than the others. And because of the way that the synoptic gospels along with John record this, we believe that Jesus probably endured two of these. The first is called the fustigatio, which was meant to appease the crowd. That before Jesus was sentenced to the cross, Pilate had him beaten with the least severe of the beatings, something that someone who had committed a minor offense would be sentenced to and then released after their beating as a warning to anybody that was thinking about doing the same thing. It was a harsh beating, but it wasn't something that would take your life. It was the least severe of these. And we believe Jesus went through this before he was sentenced to be crucified. The second level, which Jesus probably didn't endure, was called the flagellatio. When that didn't work, that was a more severe beating that would probably leave you scarred. History tells us that the second form would actually leave people disabled for the rest of their lives, unable to walk, unable to use some appendage that was hurt during the beating. But they would go to a third level of flogging. And this was usually kind of reserved for people that were condemned to die. If you were condemned to the cross, this was the scourging that you would go through, and that one was known as the verberatio. This was a brutal beating meant for people who were going to be hung on a cross. 
The interesting thing about this beating is that it was so severe that history tells us that many people didn't even make it through the beating before they died. Gathered. This is probably what is meant in verse 26 when it says he was scourged, then sent to be crucified. What would take place during this third and most severe beating is that the condemned man would be stripped naked to humiliate him. Then he would be tied to a post and beaten by several torturers, several professional soldiers who their entire duty was to torture people before they were executed. They typically favored a device that they would all have known either as a flagrum or a flagellum. This was a type of whip made of several leather strips tied to a handle. And on the end of these strips would be pieces of lead or metal, pieces of bones from animals, little pieces of glass. What they would do is they would tie you naked to a post and then they would take turns wrapping the flagellum around your flesh and then whipping it backwards in order that once it had been embedded in your flesh, it would then tear tiny strips of your flesh off. There's really no recording of whether or not this was the 39 lashes minus one that the Apostle Paul talks about, but there really wouldn't be a limit to this beating because this was a condemned man already. So they would just have their way with you. Eyewitness accounts from history tell us that these scourgings were so brutal that it would frequently leave victims with their bones from their ribs exposed because so much flesh and muscle had been ripped off. Sometimes their entrails would be exposed because the lining of their stomach was ripped out. Many theorize that Jesus' beating was especially brutal because when they would flog someone in Jerusalem before the Sabbath, they knew that they needed to have them down off of the cross before Sabbath day to follow Jewish regulations so there wouldn't be a riot. And so they would give them an extra brutal beating so that they wouldn't be on the cross for very long would hasten their death. Consider that the Old Testament narrative of Isaiah 53 tells us that he was beaten to a point where people had a tough time even looking at him. The Old Testament tells us that he was unrecognizable because of his beating. Imagine the instant inflammation that takes place, the swelling of Jesus' face, the Scarring and the blood coming from all over his body. Who knows what he looked like, but it was something so grotesque. History tells us you would have a tough time looking at someone that was flogged right before the crucifixion. And consider then that it was after that that they put the crown of thorns on his head, drove them into his brow. It was after that that they beat his head with a reed. It was after that that they put the purple robe on him and hit him and punched him and slapped him and spit on him and knelt before him to blasphemously say, Hail, King of the Jews. And then it was after this that they had to call Simon of Cyrene to carry his cross because Jesus was probably too weak to do it himself. And then right before they send him to be crucified, they ripped the purple robe off of his back and the blood had probably dried and probably ripped even more flesh off of his back. Yes, what I talked about was pretty gross. And yes, I hope that in that you see the pain that Jesus endured, but more so, I need you to understand, do you see the horrific nature of sin and the sinner's that took him there. That it was my sin, that it was your sin. 
If I had been in the crowd that day, I probably would not have reacted any differently. But beyond that, number two this morning, the crucifixion reveals the sacrificial perfection of Jesus. I don't just see a narrative of sinners, that it is through those sinners that I see a narrative of Jesus Christ's perfection, of Jesus Christ's sacrifice, of the links that he went to in order to complete the mission that God had sent him to complete. First, Jesus doesn't return the undeserved mockery. That's tough for me, because I would have I would have said, you don't understand what the Bible means. Here's how I am fulfilling that right now. Of course, the minute that anybody had done that, if I'm Jesus Christ, oh, they're all dead. That's my response. And had it not been for the will of the Father, Jesus would have been just in killing the entire crowd, condemning them immediately to eternity in hell. In that moment... Saying, oh, you want me to flex my deity in front of you? Well, it's not going to be to your benefit if I do that. I'm coming off this cross and you're not going to like what's going to happen. It's kind of like when your parents say, don't make me pull over this car. Verses 42 and 43, the religious leaders, as I said, mock Jesus with something that ultimately becomes ironic in application. And I love the way that it reads. The religious leaders say, he saved others. He cannot save himself. Because that wasn't his mission, was it? Then more so, they say, let him come down and then we will believe him. Isn't that how we treat God sometimes? God, if you will do this, I will be faithful to you. God, if you will give me this sign, then I will believe you exist. God, if you will just give something into my life, then I will follow you for all eternity. We make demands of God thinking that if God will just appease us, give in to our self-centeredness, give in to our selfish love, give in to what we want, then he is a faithful God, not ever considering that in the great infinite wisdom of God, that if Jesus had come off of that cross, then their belief would have been pointless. Because if he had come off of that cross, he wouldn't have paid the penalty for their sin. And so any belief without the atonement of our Savior is absolutely worthless. 1 Peter 2.23 states that the attitude of Jesus was that He didn't respond to the mockery, nor did He threaten those mocking Him. It says He continued entrusting Himself to Him who judges justly. In other words, there was something bigger that Jesus was doing. That thing was exactly what he said in the Garden of Gethsemane. Not my will, but yours, Father, be done. It was the will of the Father for the redemption of sinners that was Jesus' chief pursuit. And why is that so important? Because Jesus is the just judge. Because as I said, Jesus could justly have responded to their sin by demanding eternal judgment on their souls right then and right there. Yes, he could have come off of that cross and demanded justice for their sin against him in that moment. But instead, Jesus chose to entrust himself to the will of the Father. I think that's the thing that people have the hardest time doing. Is that when life isn't going the way that you planned it, when things aren't turning out as easy as you wanted them, 
it's very difficult to entrust yourself to the will of the Father. But Jesus shows us his perfection. And that lowering himself into what even physically can be looked at, not even to mention the spiritual weight of taking on the sin of the world, if we just consider the physical aspect of what Jesus is enduring, this is probably the deepest depths of suffering that you can be lowered into. Jesus is willfully choosing to lower himself into the deepest depths of suffering, saying, I will fully entrust myself to the will of the Father in this moment. That which I am incapable of doing and that which you are incapable of doing. Jesus showed himself to be the perfect sacrifice, enduring every moment of it. Jesus maintained his perfection by obeying the one command that God put on his life that he hasn't put on any of our lives. And that command is pay the penalty for the sins of humanity. Jesus went to the cross under the vilifying mockery of a sinful crowd and he paid the penalty for their sin while they beat him, while they mocked him, while they spit on him, while they wagged their heads at him and said, he who would save others, let him save himself. And in that moment, I can only imagine that in the mind of Jesus Christ, There must be the thought of if I save myself, I can't save you. I can only condemn you. Sometimes one of the greatest blessings God can give you in your life is not giving you what you ask Him for, but giving you what He knows you need. In this moment, if Jesus had given in to the will of the crowd versus the will of the Father, hell forever for you and I but he chose a better path. He's the perfect substitute for sin. Deuteronomy 21 to 23 states that a man hanged on a tree is cursed by God. That's why the gospel is so outrageous in its idea as well as in its effect. While Jesus was punished for the crime, he was not guilty of the crime. This is the doctrine of substitutionary atonement. This is the offense of the gospel. That God would kill his son for my sake. That Jesus would substitute himself for my sin. A world is offended by substitutionary atonement because it demands not justice for what others have done to you, but justice for what you have done to God. And you've done it. Every one of you have sinned against him. Every one of you have broken his law. Every one of you have blasphemed his name by your life. And yet, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.21, he who knew no sin became sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And I love the way that we misunderstand sin. Because we read that and we should personalize it. But we should also realize the depths to which it goes because it's not just what I find as acceptable sin. Because there are so many things in this life that I don't think I'm capable of. I'm like, well, I'm a sinner, but at least I'm not that kind of sinner. And so you almost like find a way out of needing a substitute for your sin because at least I'm not like that guy. 
At least I'm not guilty of what that person is guilty of. But 2 Corinthians 5.21, according to the Apostle Paul, he puts no limit on it. He just says Jesus became the very personification of sin on that cross. Not just my sin, but the sin that I ignorantly believe that I am incapable of. The sin that I would look at and say, ew, gross. The sin that I would look at and say, that is despicable. The sin that I would say, I am incapable of that. Jesus became the very personification of all of the grotesque sins that I would say I am not capable of and how dare they be capable of it. Jesus became the personification of that which I wouldn't even look on that day on the cross. Yet that offends you because it says you are a sinner in need of a Savior to pay the penalty for your sin. Not just your neighbor's sin. Not just the sin of somebody that hurt your feelings. Your sin. You have sinned against God. Galatians 3.13 summarizes that Jesus became a curse for us. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. And he recites Deuteronomy when he says, Cursed is everyone who's hanged on a tree. This is our redemption. This is what we needed. God the Son dying on the cross that I and you deserve. Interesting further is the statement where they say, let God deliver him now if he desires him. These are statements meant to insult Jesus, but in the end, they only magnify the gospel. And I love the way that God turns these into such interestingly ironic statements because God would deliver him. Just not in the way that humanity considers redemption and deliverance. We demand instant satisfaction. We demand immediate gratification. We want God to prove himself to us. We want God to work right here, right now, relieve this right now. But God doesn't play the short game the way that we do. God plays the long because God was looking at Jesus and seeking a bigger deliverance because the deliverance that I needed wasn't for Jesus to come off the cross. The deliverance that I needed was for Jesus to die on the cross so that three days later he could rise from the dead. Now, on this side of the cross, as a follower of Jesus Christ, yeah, that's a better deliverance. Cruci- excuse me, resurrection is always better than relief from pain because resurrection means there is something on the other end of the ultimate pain, and that is death. In becoming our curse, Jesus fully entrusted himself to the will of the Father. The vindication of Jesus was not that he refused to die like the crowd begged of him. Rather, the vindication of Jesus is seen in his willingness to die so that he could show a greater power than simply coming down off of the cross. Jesus didn't want to show his power over the crowd. Jesus wanted to show his power over death itself. And that demanded that he stay right there in the pain, on the cross, enduring it to the final drop of blood. Thirdly, the crucifixion reveals the sovereign love of God. The sovereign love of God. A love that runs deeper than my sin. If there's one thing as a follower of Christ that always amazes me, it's that God's love is greater than my sin because I'm a sinner. 
and I've sinned big, and I've sinned greatly, yet none of them exhausted the love of God for me in Jesus Christ. Another love there. There's God's love for His glory. And this is what's amazing about the cross of Jesus Christ because the ultimate there wasn't me. I want it to be. But that's because we don't understand love. We want love to be sentimental. We want love to be some romantic and fleeting notion. Anybody that's been married for a number of years knows that if you still try to maintain the same love that you had on your first date, your marriage is sunk. You need it to grow. You need it to develop. You need it to change. But the love of God is better than the love that I am capable of myself because the love of God goes beyond me to his utmost glory. And Jesus was firmly committed to a sovereign love for the glory of God over all things. And so he goes to the cross, gives his life, rises from the glory of God in Jesus Christ on display for all to see. And the great news of Jesus Christ is that Jesus loves the glory of the Father enough for me to be the beneficiary of the glorious love of of God because Jesus completed the mission of paying the penalty for my sin and for your sin. In Matthew 27, 40, they mocked Jesus while he's dying for their sin. They reminded Jesus of teaching about the temple. And I love this. Every preacher loves this. It's when you throw one of our sermons in our face, like it's an insult. It's like, but you said, yeah, I said that. I can't not say Now we live in a day where they record it all. All right, so I hear things I said 10 years ago, and I said, was I drunk that day? I don't, I don't, I don't remember saying that. I guess I did. Sounds like my voice, but it could be a deep fake. I don't know. But they remind Jesus of his teaching about the temple. They look at Jesus in verse 40, and they say, he who said he would tear the temple down and then rebuild it in three days. And they use it as an insult. Imagine being Jesus on the cross. And it's like, yeah, I said it, but clearly you didn't understand it. That's usually my response. I said it, but you still don't get it. Because Jesus wasn't talking about a building because the presence of God was no longer in that building. John chapter 1, verse 14 says that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. The actual verbiage there is that the Word became flesh, and He uses the word tabernacle. It says He tabernacled among us. In other words, He made the presence of God in physical form be among us through Jesus Christ. And so what Jesus was doing, even though they mock Him for it, is He's on the cross fulfilling His very sermon. And they mock Him for it. They didn't at all realize that Jesus was speaking of the true presence of God, that He was. Jesus is the truer temple. Jesus is the greater temple where the ultimate sacrifice will be made. Jesus was tearing the temple down in front of their eyes and they were too blinded to see it. This is the reality of John 3.16. The most famous of verses 
The original language, it actually says, this is the way in which God loved the world, pointing to the cross of Jesus Christ, that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him will not perish, but will have eternal or everlasting life. This is the love of God made manifest among men. This was not some plan thrown together at the last minute as an answer to the problem of evil. This wasn't God looking down saying, I think we have a problem. Jesus, get down there and do something about it. See, that's that fleeting of love that we have. No, this is a sovereign, eternal plan of love from before the foundations of the earth. Psalm 22, 7, David the king prophesies of this moment when he says, all who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. And he uses the same language Matthew uses on purpose. They wag their heads. They mocked, yes, they even wagged their heads in fury. Isaiah 53, 400 years before the crucifixion, he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God. There's that vilification. Save yourself if you are God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us. And with his wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. The love that is spoken of by Jesus in John 3.16 is the Isaiah 53 type of love. It's not an adolescent type of love. Not an immature type of love. It's an eternal sovereign love that you and I cannot even imagine because it would lead God the Son, the sinless and righteous Savior to lay on His own shoulders the penalty for my sin and for your sin. It was the sovereign love of God that was planned before the foundations of the earth to show the great glory of God and an amazing victory over sin and death, but for the benefit of all who will believe. This is a sovereign love that was and is effective to bring salvation to the best and worst of sinners in this world. God's love pierces the hardest of hearts to save. There's no one out of reach of the love of God. Like I said, Matthew focuses on the crowd, but it doesn't tell us everything because Matthew had a special, by the Holy Spirit, focus on things that he wanted to give to a Jewish audience. But Luke records more. And I stopped at verse 44 on purpose today because those two criminals. Matthew 27, 44 tells us that both of the criminals mocked Jesus. In Luke 23, something changed. Luke has more of a journalistic perspective of the cross. And he's recording a little more of the facts. Starting in verse 39, speaking of those criminals, it says, one of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the others rebuked him, saying, 
Do you not fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we justly, for we are receiving the true reward for our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. As he's dying, he realizes the weight of his sin. Maybe every crime he'd ever committed was passing through his mind. I don't know. But at a point on a cross, he realizes his own guilt and it overwhelms him and stops mocking Jesus and he hears the other one mocking. And he says, I'm not going down like that. I'm guilty. He isn't. Don't you fear God? And then he says, fascinating thing. He looks to Jesus and he says, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, truly I say to you today, you will be with me in paradise. Consider for a moment, this man didn't ask to go to paradise. This man didn't ask for salvation. This man didn't say, save me if you're the son of God. Do something. No, he looks to Jesus and he says, I'm condemned. I will pay for my sin for eternity, but you won't. So his greatest hope was that as Jesus enters his kingdom, Jesus will remember him to which Jesus looks through his words. This man didn't know the sinner's prayer. This man didn't know he could be saved. All this man knew was he is God. He is innocent. He is righteous. He will reign forever and ever. And I just want him to remember me while he does it. Jesus has greater hope for sinners than I do. Because Jesus looks through his words and while the thief had never taken a systematic theology course, he looks through his words and what does he see? He sees faith. And Jesus saves him. The thief had no time to do a single good deed. He didn't have time to go to a disciple. He didn't have time to make good on all that he had done wrong. He had time to realize who Jesus was and to realize the sinless Savior was dying for the sins of the world of which he felt in that moment. He was the foremost of sinners. The request he made was out of guilt, not self-righteousness. Friends, I will tell you, if unbelief is the great sin, which it is, then belief is the greatest act of obedience. And that is what that man did in that moment. I don't know in all that I know what that beam me up Scotty moment is like after death. I don't know. I don't, I don't know what it's like to close your eyes, die and wake up in glory. I have no idea. I just know I will. But when I think about this, I think through it, this man was on the precipice of hell. That's what he thought. He's, I'm dying. And I'm going to wake up in hell. And I deserve it. Could you imagine the shock? <laughs> he woke up in heaven. 
What amazes me about the gospel is I've been a follower of Jesus for most of my life. Many of you know that. And sometimes we have this vision of heaven where we're like, earth is so much more exciting than I think heaven's going to be because it's going to be a boring place. And I'm going to worship Jesus forever and ever. Sheesh, I can barely make it through the service without needing to use the bathroom. But imagine you're on the precipice of hell because I think that's what we miss. Imagine the delight, the glee, the glory, the joy, the sheer happiness of in a moment, I'm going to hell. And then you open your eyes and you are with Jesus Christ in what he can only describe as paradise. That thief has been with Jesus for 2,000 years. Do you think he's bored? I think he wakes up, well, I don't think we're going to sleep early in heaven, but I think that he every moment says, I was going to hell! Look at me now! 2,000 years, and I'm not even tired of it yet. After all, for all of the ridicule, Jesus did flex his deity that day. He flexed it to save a sinner. That is a great view of the sovereign love of God. That he uses his power to save. And so I ask you quickly, how will you respond to Jesus? Will you live your life joining the crowd in cowardly ridicule? Are you too blind to your sin to see the righteousness of Christ? Or like that thief, do you look to Jesus and see the perfect, sacrificial, sovereign love of God on display up against the depth of your own sin? Because only one of those is faith. Do you love Jesus? A few application points. First, repent of your sin that put Jesus on that cross. We generalize sin. It wasn't someone else's sin that took Jesus to the cross alone. It was my sin. Secondly, be reminded of the sacrifice that Jesus made for your sin. Friend, I hope you wake up every day reflecting on the price that Jesus paid for you. For you. For you. He did this to save you. Thirdly, trust that God's love is greater than all sin. There is no sinner so vile that he or she is out of the reach of the grace of God in Jesus Christ. Believe that and live like that. Fourthly, believe that Jesus is faithful to save all who believe. There's two types of belief there. First is Christian belief. I believe the gospel but I must believe the gospel to the extent that it goes beyond. I continue in spite of how bad things get in the world, in spite of all of the heinous sin that I hear about every single day, I must believe that others can believe. I must live with that hope because Jesus had that hope for sinners. Sinners. 